I missed you guys. We were on vacation last week. I told the first service that you don't realize how much you miss your church family until you're not with your church family. So you may not have missed us, but we missed you. Um, Speaking of vacations, Pastor Alex is on vacation this week, and he will be back with us next week. So uh, luckily for you and I, you get me. Um, But I get the opportunity to kick off a new series I'm excited about. Uh, It's called First Things First. Um, And this series is going to be a series about the book of Haggai. How many of you came to church this morning and expected to hear a message on the book of Haggai? Well, four of you read the E! News this week. All right. So I'm excited about this four-week series. Pastor Alex and I have been working on it for uh, the past few weeks, and uh, we are really excited about a very small rarely covered book in the Old Testament. Uh, What I have learned is that Haggai may be small, but it has a powerful punch. Um, It's also probably uh, what we would call the mighty mouse of the Old Testament. So I'm excited what we're going to fit into in the next four weeks, and I hope you are too. Um, It's a very short read, so we would highly suggest you take the time to read it over the next couple weeks. I think you'll get more out of it. I love series that are relevant, tangible, and relatable. Um, and if, uh, if this series is what I expect it to be, you will absolutely get all three of those things. Uh, I want to tell you, about two months ago, Autumn and I decided to do something that we had not done in almost nine years of being parents. We decided to celebrate our 10-year anniversary that we would go on a vacation, just the two of us. Now, we have never been away from our kids more than two nights, and even then, we were in the same state. This is where you're all looking at me and judging me. Um, but we, this was a big deal, so much so that I, this isn't my notes, and I probably regret saying it, I was so nervous to leave that I started texting certain people in my circle of life to give them my will if something happened to Autumn and I. Um, and I'm sure that's a legal binding document as a text, but I was giving my wishes for how things were going to be because anyone who knows me knows that I was going to have that planned. Um, so it was a big deal. So we started thinking, well, where are we going to go? We need to come up with a really cool place, a place that, that is like paradise. So we kind of threw around some ideas and we landed on a place that most certainly is paradise. We ended up at Disney World. Some of you, that's not a shock to you that that's where we ended up, but that's our paradise. And normally when we would go and we take the kids, we would go to Disney on a budget, which absolutely is possible, but we usually would stay at kind of like a value resort that's still nice, but this time to celebrate 10 years of making it this far, we thought we'd splurge. So we stayed at what's called a deluxe resort and we stayed at Disney's Polynesian Village. If you're going to do Disney, Do it this way. Never mind your bank accounts. (laughs) Write that down. Um, We stayed, and the first thing we did is check out this pool. This pool has a waterfall. It has an any age water slide, unless you're our age, and then it really hurts to go down that slide. But you can see a great view. In the evenings, we would go out on their makeshift beach, and we would eat Dole Whips. Does anybody know what a Dole Whip is? There's my section. They were good singers, too. A Dole Whip, Google it after service, it is God's tangible way of telling you he loves you. And we would eat Dole Whips, and we would sit here, and if you look really far out there, 
you can see Cinderella's castle and we would just sit out there and eat Dole Whips. Just keep them coming. It was great. We decided to go to two parks while we were there. We decided to go to our two favorite, which was Magic Kingdom and Epcot. We love to eat, and you can't go to Disney without going to Magic Kingdom. So we went there, and we just had a great time away. However, while we were there, we found ourselves a couple of times, multiple times, lots of times, at the pool going, man, Easton would love this pool. He would love playing in that toddler area. And then when we'd go to Epcot, we'd say, oh, Test Track is Brinley's favorite ride. She loves this ride and she loves eating here and she loves this. We found ourselves multiple times going, man, I wish the kids were here. They would have had a great time because we're never going to be able to afford to take them back here. So even in the midst of our paradise, we realized Without the presence of our kids, paradise was just okay. We had a good time. We needed to get away. We need to get away more. But it was just okay. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is that often in our daily lives, we have priorities that have all the best intentions. And those priorities are set to make us have a life that feels like paradise, But without the presence of God as our number one priority, our paradise is just going to be okay. I've titled today's message, Prioritizing Presence. And just as Pastor Jay usually asks, I would encourage you to take notes because I'm confident that today's message is something every single person in this room struggles with. I share with you that we're starting in Haggai. I've bought you about 10 minutes to try to find Haggai in your Bibles. Um, It takes up about two pages in your entire Bible. Uh, The best way to find it is probably going to be start in the New Testament, Matthew, and go back about four books, and then you'll find the two or one and a half pages of Haggai. But uh, that's where we're going to be. But before we get started, I think it's important that I kind of uh, give you some background of the people we're going to be talking about so that it helps us to be more relatable to them. The group that we're talking about um, is a group of people that were in their land, but a group of Babylonians came and overtook them. They destroyed their homes, their land, their temple, and then they took them into exile for 70 years. And after that 70 years, the Babylonians were overtaken by the Persians, and the Persians gave this group of people the option. They said, hey, you can stay here, or you can go back to your land, and most went back to their land. But when they got back, they recognized that their entire land was demolished. And they knew that God had called them to rebuild the temple first so that God could come and dwell among them. So that's what they started to do. They started to rebuild the temple. They rebuilt the foundation. They started rebuilding the altars. And they started to make it theirs. And then they got distracted. And they started working on other things. But they thought everything had gone pretty well. They had their land back. They were working on their temple. And everything seems to be pretty good. Except for the prophet Haggai shows up. And he's got a different idea of how things are going. And he makes it a point to tell them, not so fast, my friends. 
So we are going to be in Haggai. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to skip ahead about 16 years since they've been back in their land. And Haggai is bringing the word of the Lord to the people. Verse 1 says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Anyone who's looking for baby names, this is where I'd start. Verse 2, Haggai says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. So let's stop here. We don't hear God refer to people very often as these people. But why? Because God's not very happy right now. Because these people aren't living like my people. Look at your neighbor and say, don't be these people. You know, what, what I love is when, when we talk about these people, we're, we're trying to understand, well, why aren't they acting like God's people? Well, because they have said right here that they're not rebuilding the Lord's house. They haven't finished the temple. So for 16 years, they've been called to rebuild this temple, but they haven't done anything except for other things that we'll find out more about here in a little while. But what I love is they give a good excuse. They say, it's just not time right now. I love that they take their regular excuse and kind of wrap it in something spiritual. And say, well, no, 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 it's just, it's just not God's time yet. This sounds familiar to you. If we, if we take our excuses and we wrap them spiritually, they sound like this. Pastor Teresa needs us to serve in outreach, and we say, I'll pray about it. Or, or we need help in the children's wing, and we say, you know, I just don't think I'm called the children's ministry. We take our excuses and we wrap them in this spiritual blanket with the idea that that's pleasing to God, but God sees right through it and says, no, that's not going to work. Um, so when they wrap it in the spiritual excuse, we say, okay, well, why haven't you, if it's not the time, what are you doing to not finish the temple? Well, the, the problem is they started to run into resistance. They started to realize the work is hard and, and they had some pushback and some obstacles and they found themselves in a really dangerous place of saying, well, if it's hard then it probably isn't God's will. Have you ever found yourself there? If it's hard, maybe it's not God's will for me to do this. I know I have, and that's what they've been doing for 16 years. But if they haven't been rebuilding the temple, what have they been doing? Well, in verse three, we find out. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, and I love his sassiness here. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? So for 16 years, they've been taking a little bit of a break, but this whole time, they've been working on their own homes. If there was an emoji version of the Bible, the first service, there wasn't young people, so they didn't get this part. But if they were talking, if there was an emoji version of the Bible, there would be the eye roll emoji right here, because God's like, oh, I get it, I get it, I get it because there's no time to build my house, you've got time to build your house. I get it. He sees right through this. So when, when he's 
pointing out that they have not been working on his house, but building their own, he also points out an important piece of this. You yourselves have been living in your paneled houses. Now, most of you, including my wife who lives in a home that has wood paneling, is rolling your eyes and saying, yeah, Rick, 70s wood paneling. But you have to understand, wood paneling in these days, while most houses were built in stone and limestone, wood paneling was shiplap before Chip and Joanna made it cool. It was the real deal. It was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of completion. Their their houses were ready for the weather and to withstand the weather because they had wood paneling on their house. But God's not necessarily upset that the, temp, the temple isn't completed. What he's mad about is that while his temple remains in ruins, they're living in the lap of luxury. You see, these people were spending all their time and all of their energy building up their own kingdom while his kingdom was laying in ruins. The problem here isn't the wealth, it isn't the energy, it isn't the time, it isn't the resources that they've wasted The problem is their priority. And their priority is an issue of the heart. In Matthew 6, we hear, for where your treasure is, your heart is. That can be translated today as where your priorities are is where your heart is. See, the same faithful people, these were not bad people. They were good people. They had generation of generation of people that were faithful to God's call on their life and they did everything within God's will. The problem was they got distracted and changed their focus on what made them happy and less on what God God had called them to do. Does this sound foreign to you? It shouldn't. You see, building the temple wasn't just important, it was symbolic. And, and again, they had started the temple. I told you, they, they had the foundations of the temple rebuilt. They had the altars were rebuilt. The temple, for all purposes, was functional. It just wasn't what God had called it to be. You know, many of us have created a very functional relationship with God. Something that that allows us to uh, just be an act of construction to check a box. You see, we have this problem where, yes, functional faith is great. We want you to have a relationship with Jesus. Don't hear that wrong. But it has to be something much, much more than just functional. Because these people When the going got tough, they got going. They walked away. The same thing happens when we have a functional faith. When everything is just surface and it's just functional to check a box, then when things get hard, many just walk away. I know this in my own life. As a teenager, I had a very functional faith. I had a faith that was just deep enough that I kept people off my back about whether I was involved in things I shouldn't be involved with and whether I was hanging out with people that I shouldn't have been because they saw my functional faith. The problem is when I became a young adult and I met real obstacles and real resistance, functional faith just doesn't cut it. 
it, I, I had forgotten how God had been faithful in my life and the call of the real relationship he wants me to have. And the kind of relationship that we're called to and that these people are called to isn't this functional faith, but it's an act of obedience and worship. That's the kind of relationship, including making him our first priority. You know, and and like this group, many people say, well, my faith's good enough, but I'll come back to it when it's convenient to me when it's the right time for me. After all, I've got kids to raise. I've got to get them, in a good jo- or get them in a good college. I've got a job that's got me on the fast track to that penthouse office making six digits. I don't have time right now, God. I'll come back to it when it's convenient. I'm here at church as much as, as, much as I can be. It's not easy getting up to be here at 9.30. Amen. I guess you guys don't have a problem with that. We have a very functional faith. But what God points out is the dangers of having a very functional faith in verse 5. He says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. He's showing them all these things that you're doing to satisfy yourself, they never fill you, do they? All the things you're working hard to get, they never last, do they? The Lord is telling them, you take and you take, you want and you want, but you never take into consideration the things I have for you and the life I want for you. You think you need all of these things, but what you really need is me. Because all of these other things aren't cutting it, are they? These people sound a whole lot like us people, don't they? See, we do things like we buy nice houses, we buy nice cars, we buy nice clothes, we work long hours to impress our boss, we take our kids to every event we can make it to to keep them happy. But church, what do we do when all of those things that we're pouring time, energy, and resources into give you nothing? What do we do? You see, what he's talking about is this great visual in verse 6 that I just could not get out of my head this week. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. How much time do we spend with the priorities of filling our bag only for it to have holes in it where it falls out of the bottom? What we need is to be doing our priorities that both glorify and affirm God as our first priority. So now that I've made us all feel pretty good about where our priorities lie, what do you do with it? Well, he gives us an answer in verse eight. He says, go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Follow me here. He doesn't say stop. 
turn around and go back to something else or start something else. No. He says, no, 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 no. Go back to the same mountains that you've been going up and getting resources for yourself, but this time I want you to redirect it and build my house. He doesn't say stop what you're doing, change everything about you. No, he just says redirect it. The same applies for us. He doesn't want you to give up on all of those things that I just told you about. He wants you to have a nice car. He wants you to have a nice house. He wants you to have a job that provides for your family. He wants your kids to be smart. He wants them to be in athletics. He wants you to be all of these things but he only wants them if they're glorifying and affirming him as the number one priority in your life. There's this off-putting idea that once you become a Christian, that you have to give up everything in your life. Your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, everything. Not all Christians are called to be pastors and missionaries. We good there? But what he, and and let me say this too, there is things in your life that you're tangled up in sin that he does want you to turn away from. But all of those hopes, dreams, ambitions, he wants you to have those. He's rooting for you. He put them in your heart for a reason because he wants you to chase them, but he wants you to chase them at the cost of glorifying him. In verse nine, we see a version of God that's not so much fun. It says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house which remains in ruin. While each of you is busy with your own house, therefore because the heavens have withhold the dew and the earth its crops, I have called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and on the labor of your hands. You see, this isn't a fun version of God because all of the things that they've been working towards aren't being fruitful. And God says, well, I know why. Because I've been withholding them from you. Why? Because you're serving yourself and you're not serving me. Imagine how these people felt. They had been exerting all of this energy to get the things they wanted. I equated this in the first service of sometimes on like a Saturday, I get like this much energy and, and I go out and I mow the grass and then I edge the flower beds and then I, I rearrange stuff and I power wash stuff and then I go inside and I go, hey Autumn, look at all that. And she goes, cool. All this work that they've been working towards, God says, oh yeah, it's not working for you. Why? because I've been withholding the blessing on it because you're focused on you, just like me. Look at what I did. That's, that's what we're talking about here is, is God is saying, but, but if you exert the same amount of energy and you devote the same amount of time, but you redirect it to glorify me, 
There's blessings on the other side. That's good news. He affirms that in verse 13. This is where we shut down the cameras because I'm jumping into Alex's message next week. Verse 13 says, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, says the Lord. So this was their break moment. This was their fired up moment. This is where they're ready to run through the tunnel. They're ready to go to work. They're going to work and they're excited about what God's gonna do. I want you to notice something though. This wasn't the completed task. God didn't wait until they were done with the temple to say, I am with you. He said, if you take one step of redirecting your time, your energy, your resources, then I am with you. Church, do you hear that in your own lives? The things that you're struggling with, the priorities that have been elevated over God, he's not telling you, wipe them all out and then I'll come hang out with you. He's saying, take one step to redirect that energy to making me number one and I am with you. The temple not being done doesn't hinder his promise. You being perfect today doesn't hinder his promise. His promise is the same for you as it was for them. Take one step and I am with you. So you ask the question, well, if he's already saying he's with them and they're just going to do the work, then why complete it anyway? Simple. The problem they had before, it shows an act of faithfulness and obedience. That's what he's calling them. And just in this passage, as with all of us here, God's not worried about the physical act of the temple being done. He's more worried about their hearts. He's not worried about how fast you get a raise. He's not worried about what kind of car you have. He's not worried about what kind of house you have. He's not worried about any of those things. He's worried about your heart. Because your priorities is where your heart is. That's what he's worried about. All he wants from you is to be the first priority so that he can be honored and he can bless you immensely. When we have his presence in our paradise as number one, that's where the blessings come. That's when we start to see God at work. That's when we can see all of the time and energy we're exerting being worth it because we have made him number one. So as we close in worship, I want to challenge you to the same thing in verse 7 that Haggai shares with these people. Give careful thought to your ways. I want, you to incur, I want to encourage you to be examining those things. What are the things in your life that you have elevated above God? What are the things that you have cut God out of? Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your families. What is it that has been elevated over God and you're just not seeing the blessings? 
Because if God seems distant in your life, it's probably because he's not number one in your life. I know that's tough. And we are all guilty of finding things that come up to be more important than our relationship. But God doesn't want you to have a functional faith. He doesn't want you just checking a box. He's waiting to bless you immensely. But you've got to redirect. I want you to be thinking, where is God withholding that blessing? Where do I continue to put more and more work into? Where do I continue to exert all my energy, but I just come up empty? Maybe if you invite God to be over that, you won't feel like you're coming up empty. So I want to make you uncomfortable, if I haven't already. And I want you to stand up as we worship. And not only do I want you to stand up, but I want you to hear and worship in this song. As Pastor Dev said at the beginning, I want you to put your hands out like this, symbolically saying to God, God, I've probably messed up. I've probably elevated other things above you, but there is nothing, nothing else that I want in my life than to have you number one in it. Let's worship.